0: Whether or not you have read Gillian Flynn's multi-million selling novel, Gone Girl, you most likely will know that it holds a very big twist in the middle. But David Fincher's film has an even bigger one, and he holds it off until the end. Flynn herself adapted the novel, and even though this is just her first screenplay, it serves as the firm foundation for an intriguing, provocative, and mordantly funny film. On the surface, Flynn's novel is about a couple. Nick and Amy Dunn, who hit a snag on their fifth wedding anniversary because Amy abruptly disappears and Nick is soon accused of having murdered her. I said on the surface because what Flynn succeeded in doing is presenting a thriller inside of which she gift wrapped several interesting themes such as, well, here is Flynn herself.
1: I knew I really wanted to get into marriage and I knew I wanted to create kind of almost a marital thriller, like a thriller told through the lens Specifically of a relationship and the things that we do to each other during relationships and the power plays of it, and I liked the idea of marriage as a really long con. We start any sort of relationship by putting our best self forward, and I think that's kind of what love is—is is like you almost start believing that you are that best self and that you you know, so you feel wonderful in this relationship and everything. Well, you—you you, no one can pretend to be someone who's perfect forever, and. You know, a couple of years, two, three, four years, you do become sort of different people than the people you <laughs> you tricked <laughs> into marrying you. And so I, I wanted that when it to take that to a really intense, high degree, and, and that these two people fell madly in love with each other, and then found out that they were madly not supposed to be together.
0: So you have deception, manipulation, unfulfilled dreams, and when the search for Amy cranks up, media hysteria. But above all. Gone Girl is about narcissism. In the novel, Flynn uses not just one, but two narrators, Amy and Nick, who yearn not just for our attention, but our validation as well. Flynn structured her book as a back and forth between what Nick said and what Amy said, so much so that it is if that they are in competition with one another to convince us as to who is the better spouse, the better person. But so wide are their contradictions, all you can really wonder is, who is the better liar? You see, their accounts differ so much that you end up doubting everything you're being told. A bit like a detective or a marriage counsellor. Amy, who are you? A, I'm an award-winning scrimshender.
1: B, I'm a moderately influential warlord. C, I write personality quizzes for magazines. Okay. Well, your hands are far too delicate for real scrimshaw work, and I happen to be a charter subscriber to Middling Warlord Weekly, so I recognize you. I'm going to go with C. And you? Who are you? I'm the guy to save you from all this awesomeness.
0: Flynn has said that she was inspired by Edward Albee's landmark stage play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? as well as Zoe Heller's Booker-Prize-nominated novel Notes on a Scandal. Now, I'm not accusing Flynn of deceiving us, but I think there is another source, and that is Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece, Rashomon, a murder mystery where the witnesses all deliver such wildly different testimonies that we don't know who to believe. The challenge then was for director David Fincher to satisfy Flynn's millions of readers. I mean, why mess with a winning formula? while simultaneously presenting his own take on it. Here is Fincher himself. I think that there's the requisite amount of disdain is had, you know, for each character, as well as the requisite amount of love, you know, and I think Gillian came to the um, uh, the adaptation, you know, being fairly straight down the middle, having her foot on on, on either side of the fence. Ultimately, it's not about what happens. It's about how it happens. The film often casts an hypnotic spell, one that is initially entrancing, but then as the story unfolds, it becomes increasingly disturbing. Take the opening credits. We see images of a small suburban town in Missouri. Each frame is carefully composed, but there is something about the editing of those shots that is unsettling, and it is this they aren't allowed to settle. Edited by Kirk Baxter, these shots aren't so much cut together as they are sliced, and their rhythm is to make us feel uneasy. Compounding that is the film's score. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done the music to Fincher's last three films, and while their brilliant work won an Oscar for The Social Network, what they do here far outstrips everything that they've done before. Quite often we are seeing one thing while hearing something else entirely. What I mean by that is that the visuals take you in one direction and the soundtrack takes you in another. For instance, while Baxter is slicing those opening credits, the opening track is relaxing to the point that you feel that you are in a health spa, lying back as a masseuse goes about loosening up all your joints and limbs, and in the background is some new age music composed to the gentle rhythm of water flowing through bamboo shoots. This is sonic Prozac, an emotional enema, washing out all those ill feelings that we have stored inside. So, what are you to trust? What you see, or what you hear?
1: So, your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish Ivy League, rubs people Uh, the wrong way? She's from New York. She's complicated, Very high standards. Type A. Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type.
0: God, I don't know. I have to look it up
1: at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. I'm sure, y'all are married.
0: I said that Flynn delivers her novel via two untrustworthy accounts. In literary terms, the device is called the unreliable narrator, and it is through the unreliable narrator. That Flynn is able to deliver her delicious twists. I wanted them to be unreli- unreliable
1: narrators. I
0: wanted—I've always
1: loved—I've always loved unreliable narrators. I love that sense of um, unease you get when you when you s- start thinking, oh, this person I've I've trusted myself with might not be trustworthy. And so as you go forward, you, you really have to kind of do decide who's telling the truth. Is it, is it Nick telling the truth that he didn't kill his wife, or is it Amy, you know, leading you to believe? certainly that things, you know, are are not as Nick is presenting them.
0: Now, there are such films that hold devilish twists, such as The Usual Suspects, where Kevin Spacey's Verbal Clint is our unreliable narrator. Or, as in Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, we had Christian Bale's Alfred Borden pulling the wool over our eyes. But in films like The Sixth Sense, where there is no narrator at all, or at least not in the commonly understood meaning, It is the director who pulls the twist, and therefore it is they who are not to be trusted. It's called misdirection, and Fincher has already proved himself quite a dab hand at it. Fight Club delivers a startling 180-degree turn late in the third act, and he does the same again with Gone Girl. Only in Gone Girl, he holds the ace up his sleeve until the very final shot. It's a neat little trick that he pulled in Zodiac, his exhaustively labyrinthine picture that used the investigation into a 1970s serial killer as a way of depicting the struggle to find good in a world increasingly determined by chaos. Despite that chaos, Fincher structured Zodiac so meticulously that the first face that we see in the film is also the last face we see. The face is of Mike Meiju. Who survived the zodiac's first attack in the film and who at the end of the film identifies his assailant as arthur lee allen
1: last time i saw this face was july 4th 1969.
0: now the final shot in gone girl is a replica of the opening shot we see the head of amy dunn and we see the hand of nick dunn as he strokes her blonde hair in both shots it appears that amy Lying on Nick's stomach is asleep. But in both shots, she turns suddenly to look up at Nick. And both shots are accompanied by a voiceover delivered by Nick. At the beginning, we hear him say, When I think of my wife, I always think of her head. I picture cracking her lovely skull, unspooling her brain, trying to get answers. The primal questions of a marriage. What are you thinking? how are you feeling what have we done to each other what will we do and then at the end we hear nick say what have we done to each other what will we do when you're rattling around a marble inside someone's brain and they and they get to tell you their their deepest most intimate stuff it's a very different thing than having to experience somebody who's in the middle of a crime investigation and is and is giving testimony and it is a very it's an it's an odd thing to take people's thoughts and turn them into behavior that you can witness. Whether it be Flynn's screenplay or Fincher's direction, the structure of the story tells us what really happened during the film. Nothing. It was all in Nick's head. The whole mystery, the disappearance, the searches, the accusations, the vigils, the twists and turns, Amy's coming home safely, The whole thing was the imagining of Nick. Now that may sound like a cop-out, but hopefully it explains the metaphor of the plot. It's not about murder, but about a disappearance. Where on earth has that person I married gone? This is a departure from Flynn's book, and it is a crucial one because in creating The Scheming Amy, Flynn has been accused of misogyny. It is a charge she has denied by pointing out how she depicts the other female characters in her novel. But by opening and closing the film with replica shots, Fincher not only neutralizes the accusation of misogyny, but he presents a critique of misogyny. The whole story is Nick's projection. He does not like his wife, yes, but he transfers his dislike onto her so that in his mind she attacks him. Therefore, his feelings for her are justified. Deeply paranoid stuff, but then again, that's what misogyny is. Gone Girl may leave a very unsavoury taste in the mouth, but for me, that ending is one of the most satisfying of any film in a long time. And I'm sure it will provide for a lot of uncomfortable conversation for couples for a very long time to come.